Hello, listeners. Welcome to Season 5 of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Every other Thursday, I chat with an author writing on the not-so-gritty end of the crime fiction spectrum. If you prefer your mystery without hardcore sex and violence, join us in The Cozy Corner. Welcome. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Jin Malier, author of the St. Just Mysteries, joins me in the corner today to chat about Death in Cornwall, the fourth book in the series. Welcome, Jin. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, first off, am I pronouncing St. Just properly? Because I know St. John is sometimes pronounced Sinjin, which took me forever to figure out what people were saying when I first heard it pronounced that way. I have always just, just said St. Just. I know there's a, a sort of French version of that, saint or something like that, which I was never in my mind when I was writing about him. Um, my, the location is, the name came from a, a real location in Cornwall where my family, my mother's family was supposed to be from. They were 10 miners. So I just liked the name and I gave it to my character. So it's a, it's a place name. It's a place name. Yeah, absolutely. Arthur St. Just, the St. Just part is, there There are two St. Justs in Cornwall. It gets a bit confusing. I guess he was a, a popular saint back in the day. But I've been to the village, the one that I think is is the the correct village. And it's very sweet. And it's right by the, the ocean. And it's not far from Tintagel, which is King Arthur's supposed birthplace. So it's just a wonderful you know, rich in history kind of spot. And what was, what is St. Just the patron saint of? Oh gosh, I don't, I don't know. Tin <laughs> mining possibly. <laughs> I don't know. They all had a specialty, didn't they? I'll have to look him up. The famous St. Just, and I quote, I think in the first St. Just, I quote this man. He was a, a real rabble rouser, a very strident was a political type in France. Of Saint Just, I guess, and uh, he's nothing like my my series character, but he's uh, he he wants to set the world to rights in his own way. That's sort and, of what the detectives and stories want to do, though, don't they? Set the world right. Exactly. That's that's exactly the point of these stories. You never have a story where it isn't resolved somehow at the end, which is what we miss in real life too often. And this is actually fascinating. And I, and I actually really do want to hear more about the tin mining, but I, I, I'm going to talk about your books first, but I promise I want to circle back around to that because that, I, I don't know why it surprises me that tin has to be mined. Uh, I guess because I've never thought of it before. I'm actually staring at a piece of tin foil. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess you would have to get that out of the ground somehow. So I, I promise I want to ask more about Cornwall and the, the tin miners and the uh, rabble rousing French saints and how a French saint is connected to a small village in England where King Arthur's from. But I want to talk about your book. <laughs> That's why you're here, right? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> So as I mentioned, uh, Death in Cornwall is the fourth book in the series. Uh, so would you tell us what uh, DCI St. Just is up to this time around? Well, this time, you know, it's been a 10-year hiatus from the series. The oh. first one was published in 2007, 2006, I believe, a long time ago. 
and then there were two more books. Complicated situation. I changed publishers. And much to my surprise, when you do that, they don't say, bring St. Just with you. They say, what do you have that's new just for us? So I, that's where the Max Tudor books came from. I started something new for Minotaur. Um, what was your question? <laughs> Sorry. It was just what Death and Cromwell is about, but how did you um, get back to a series that was with publisher A, now with publisher B, after a, I don't want to say a detour, but sort of a, a side path through a, an entirely different series? How did you come back around to the St. Just series? Yeah, it's um, St. Just was someone I didn't want to let go of. He's, um, he's a straightforward, DCI, you know, operating in Great Britain. He's just a, a sensible, honest, no-nonsense no kind of police detective. And that's, there's, he doesn't have any particular quirks or oddities, like which was, that was popular for a while, that he had to have a, a tick of some kind. He's just this, this decent guy. And I always wanted to return to him uh, and was given the chance by by Severn House, which is a, uh, an arm of uh, Canongate in Edinburgh. And I just thought, this is what I wanted to do. I just really missed him and his, uh, his fiancee, Portia Diath. I'm kind of putting off getting those two married because that can lend a different flavor to a, to a series. I learned that with Max Tudor. I felt he got a little boring once he was married, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and it also restricted, you always had to account for the wife and the baby. You couldn't just have him run off and investigate. You had to do something with the baby, especially. That was, that was a huge thing. I was always, always kind of forgetting, <laughs> you know, you can't just leave. Um, you know, practical things like that that I don't think the reader is, is quite aware of. Hopefully they're just enjoying the story and they don't realize that you're having to account for so many things and keep so many strings in play and not have, you know, get that dreaded email saying what happened to the baby <laughs> kind of thing. Oops. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it could, it could easily could. As you're writing the first draft, it, you're just telling the story and you're not, you're not thinking of these little details like he has a son. Um, as again, I'm putting off marrying off uh, St. Just just for a while, although I can see in their future some wedding that goes awry. You know, there's big, big plans and the dress and the whole thing, and then someone is murdered at the, at the ceremony. I know that's not original, but it's just something I want to explore what that would be like. You've actually brought up a, a real issue. It's sometimes been referred to as the the moonlighting effect after uh, the uh, 1980s, early 90s TV series where yeah. you know, after the characters became an official couple, it kind of lost that certain something that it had before. But on the other hand, you know, cozy mysteries often feature the sort of family aspect completely separate from the mystery. I mean, I've heard some folks say they even care less about the mystery than they care about the uh, sort of a 
guess, private lives of the characters. And a lot of cozy mystery readers have come from the over from the romance genre, which I think influences that. So how do you how do you balance those two different things? I mean, like you said, you don't want to have to worry about what I do with the baby in chapter nine. But on the other hand, um, you know, you're writing in a, a subgenre where it's common for the detective or the sleuth to have a spouse and, and children and a dog or a cat. So how, how do you kind of manage that? Well, you know, what has developed is that his fiancée, uh, Portia, is actually becomes integral to the story, to the sleuthing, because she is a crime writer, which comes in, you know, really handy. So especially in this book, she is definitely uh, in, the, in the middle of solving the crime. He doesn't want her to be, but she is. Um, so that's how, that's how I'm dealing with that. And I do want to avoid, you know, once it becomes kind of domesticated, as you said, moonlighting, it, it did lose that spark. They were always, I mean, these two don't really fight, but they, there was that, that edge that made this, this show so entertaining. And it's, it was gone. It was, it was the funniest thing. It just it wasn't there anymore. Oh, by the way, you also have to keep track of dogs. I'm learning with the new series that, you know, uh, she, the character has a dog. And I tend to have her go off and, and investigate, and the dog has to be walked. I mean, that's, that has to be accounted for. Again, it's these little things. Yeah, it's like unable to cat, because the, the cat can be left on its own more than the dog. Yeah, yeah for, the cat's been left for a week or something, yes. Yes, <laughs> it, it is, any character that doesn't have a, a real speaking part, you, you tend to forget that they are there. They're as much a part of the plot as you know, anything else. No, and so you've you've given some hints as to what death in Cornwall is is about. And you're um, uh, um, so your uh, uh, fiance writing a, a mystery. Sorry, I got a little tongue tied there. Um, so what what else happens in, in death in Cornwall without without giving any spoilers? Without saying too much. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually they're on holiday. They are taking a break from, he's based in Cambridge, this DCI. He works for the Cambridge, Cambridgeshire Police. And uh, Portia is on a summer holiday. It's set in August. So that they're just having, they think, a relaxing vacation, no crime. She's planning to maybe, you know, take notes for a new novel, but nothing more strenuous or exciting than that. And they just want to see the, you know, Tintagel and and the mines and the you know the the seaside and that's all they have in mind, and of course, what happens in these books as as soon as soon as they show up, there is a death, and because Saint Just is kind of famous by this time, the local police say, "Oh, please help us solve this. We don't know what to do." So, and he's very glad to help, but there goes the vacation really. It's a, a- dead body would kind of uh, put a damper on your vacation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it, once again, I, you know, Portia has to be accounted for. She kind of goes off to sightsee, but in reality, she's drawn to the case as well as uh, St. Just. So. And Portia also has a, a career back in Cambridge, correct? She does. Yeah. She is a, a, uh, 
oh, they have various words for this. But she's basically a professor of English back in Cambridge. Oh, no, I, I beg your pardon. She's a professor of uh, criminology. Criminology. Oh, so that sort of comes in handy both with writing mystery novels and helping your fiancé solve a murder. Yeah. Yeah, I plan to draw on her quite a bit because she does tend to know the more esoteric parts of of these things, of poisons and so on and so forth, that mystery writers do tend to become expert in, whether we you know, plan to or not. Now, you, you mentioned that St. Just is uh, well-known already. So, you know, the, the, the big city detective who investigates the small-town crime is a, a familiar trope in mysteries. And, uh, you know, you've handled it by making him well-known enough that someone seeks him out, like what Christie did with, with Poirot, uh, versus the case where you've got a complete amateur, you always have to deal with that, well, why would you ask this person to help? Uh, so <laughs> how, how else have you sort of kept that trope fresh other than you know, making this someone whose reputation precedes him, so of course he'd be involved? You know, how else have you... Uh, sort of played with that theme to keep it from just being the same old thing over again. Oh, well, what might be different about it is that they don't resent his interference. There's, you know, there tend to be stories where the, the CIA and the FBI and the local police are all squabbling about who's in charge. And that develops very quickly over a, a crime. I, I don't know if that happens in real life or not in, in, you know, my story, he's just accepted as, of course, you're going to help us because we don't have the, the kind of manpower to deal with this. We don't have murders here. It's a tiny village of less than 300 people. I don't think I ever say that, but most villages are uh, 300 people or less to be officially called villages. Well, that, that 300 or less is definitely tiny. Um, I didn't realize that was an official number to be a village, I guess a village as opposed to a town? Yeah, there's a, there is a cutoff. I, I read that somewhere. I think it still holds true. Yeah, and they, uh, I said a scene in there. Uh, they have a, the, the local obsession is that outsiders are coming in, taking over Cornwall because it's so beautiful, buying up the property and leaving, you know, the people who actually live there without a place to live, that they, that they can afford to live in anymore. Cornwall has really exploded, especially during the pandemic. People wanted to get into the fresh air and away from the city, you know, London in particular, and they just swarmed in and bought up all the property. So this becomes a subplot, and it is part of the, uh, could one of these people have been so angry at the man who was killed? Well, it's, it's the Lord Bodwally is the man who was killed. Uh, because he's completely, you know, insensitive to this, to what's happening right in his own, his own town, his own village. So I think a few suspects would have wanted him done away with. But I managed to work in, I think, the real concerns of the people who live in a, in a beauty spot like that and want to keep it beautiful, but at the same time need the tourist dollar it's always a balancing act it, it sounds like at least in the u.s it's called gentrification i don't know if there's if the british use a, a different term for that but uh the idea of uh 
people who have a lot of money moving into uh, an area that's either a, a, an economically depressed city or a small town and sort of taking over and, and changing things to suit them is a, is a very current issue uh, in, in real life. Um, and you've also, you also deal with the issues of uh, uh, businesses that depend on tourists coming into conflict with the needs of uh, businesses that don't rely on tourists uh, and the conflict between the business development in general and the uh, desire for environmental preservation. So did these themes, did the themes come first and then your story or was just as you were writing your story, you realized that these very real world themes sort of dovetailed in with the, with the tale that you wanted to tell? I think I think it came along in the process. This is a book I actually sketched out of you know years ago, over a decade ago, planning to write it. I had something like a two-page synopsis of what I wanted it to be a, to be like. The real book, the actual book, turned out to be quite a bit different. But there was this theme of outsiders. They call them Emmets coming to Cornwall. They're, I think I'm saying that right, Emmets. Uh, E-M-M-E-N-T-S, and they, uh, this has apparently been an ongoing issue because I was writing about it 10 years ago, and now it's only worse with the pandemic. Um, it, it evolves as you go. With this one, I, originally I didn't know who the killer was 10 years ago. I didn't know. In fact, I think I had sort of in mind a different person the person who evolved as being the killer in this was just kind of, I don't know, just kind of fun. She, whoops, he or she intrigued me a lot in the writing. So that, that developed into the killer. Uh, speaking of fun, I mean, your, your mystery is a humorous cozy. Uh, so how do you uh, sort of incorporate or, or, manage serious issues that have relevance for many people today with humor and kind of that light touch that cozies are known for. Because I mean, you, could, you could very easily get quite uh, noirish when you're talking about uh, things like gentrification and uh, business interests versus environmental preservation, but that then wouldn't be in the cozy realm. So how do you, how do you kind of uh, blend the sort of lighter side with uh, things that are that have a real world real world impact? It's a balancing act. It really is. You you don't want to ever forget that you are writing about a serious thing, a serious crime, the taking of a human life. At the same time, I think my books are more about put a group of people together stir them up and see what happens. And I, I find that to be fascinating in, in real life and in uh, a novel I can control to some extent. In real life, I can't. But just these, you know, the hidden feuds and the, uh, the egos. And, and, you know, it's just a wonderful parade. <laughs> and that tends to be my, my real interest combined with trying to hide who the killer is, which Agatha, Agatha Christie knew how to do this so so brilliantly. You never noticed she was telling you all along the way 
who the killer was. You just missed it because of her style of writing. I, I think it was just so, you know, she'd just pull you along in her wake and you never had time to look back and say, why did that guy have the window open? You know, something, something, why would you ask why is the window open? But that turns out to be a big clue. Um, I think that's the, the challenge for me. And the, the thing I love about this uh, genre is mixing the, 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 the egos and the, the desire for this, that, or the other, you know, person or money or whatever it is they want, mixing that with uh, hopefully a plot that has little hidden clues all the way along, but the reader doesn't notice, you know? Now, uh, something else you talked about that uh, interests uh, me in particular is is the theme of outsiders. Uh, I mean, it's because uh, growing up, I never really felt like I fit in anywhere. So outsider characters fascinate me. So you've got the issue of the uh, people coming in from outside of the, the, the Emmets, um, and yet you've got an outsider detective who the locals need to turn to for help because he has some, um, you know, skills and experience that they don't. And then you also have local characters who are still outsiders, like uh, Sybil the Scarecrow, just because they don't fit sort of the local definition of, of typical. So what, what are some of the, the advantages of, of including outsider characters? Or on the flip side, what are some of the challenges of that? Uh, well, what happens in a village, of course, and what I ran across with the Max Tudor books was that you have a set, you know, maybe eight people, 10 people that recur in every book. And you need to, you, you sort of have to have an outsider either die or be the killer just because you, you don't want to kill off, you know, a beloved character, beloved to you anyway. Um, it, it almost has to be an outside influence, an outsider coming to upset the balance, the tranquility of the setting you know, that this foreign element that comes in and, and suddenly someone's dead. It's almost, I think, in, I can't think of a case where it's not someone, yeah, an outsider status upsetting the status quo. Yeah. It's just, it's, goes, it's part of the genre. It's part of what happens. If this were set in London, it would be a completely different story. Uh, and the trouble in, with that would be limiting the suspects, you have an entire city full of suspects. So that's even more, to me, that would be more challenging. And you've touched on how setting influences the story that you tell. And the setting of Cornwall, Cornwall just feels like a very timeless place. You know, it's, it's not uh, the hustle and bustle of London and, and even Cambridge, which is smaller than London, it feels like the big city compared to Cornwall. So how did you incorporate that timeless feeling of a, a small village, even one that's facing the in, encroachment of modernization? Uh, how did you incorporate that in the, into a contemporary mystery? It's, um, again, it's, it's a tricky balance of, you know, the, all these characters have been affected by the outside world as much as they would like not to be. They depend on it. There's a, you know, Cornwall is sort of a foodie destination in particular. And the village I invent in is, is called Maidsfell. 
there's it, it's attracted you know very state of the art uh, type chefs you know three star restaurants you know very big deal and it, this is what draws people in. Um, again, the the people who are there originally who were born there, they need these outsiders at the same time they resent them very much so because they do. They bring their big cars and their their loud families, and they bring all this racket with them. Um, and for them, it's a trade off constantly. You know, how I want to make a living. This is the only way to to make a living. Uh, being a fisherman really doesn't pay off in in England. If you've been following the uh, the news uh, ever since uh, Brexit, that caused that had a real effect on Cornwall because of the fishermen, and that was the, a big industry. Again, the ten mines. The reason my, I guess he was my great great grandfather left, was because the tin ran out, and all he knew how to do was was mine. So he came to the United States, and ended up mining. He ended up in California mining uh, gold, and and you know tin and things. And you know he, that was his skill, and he applied it to whatever was in the ground that they they wanted to dig out. So. Long way of saying um, these these people are very you know making a living is to all of us just you know basic, and when the circumstances change, they either adapt or they leave. That's what has to happen. And brought us back around to the tin mining. Uh, yeah, one of the wonderful things about novels is that they do allow us to visit places vicariously that we might not make it to in person and. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us will have to do our traveling to Cornwall from our armchairs. So would, would you tell us some more about Cornwall, the, the tin miners versus the fishers and fishermen rather. And, and, you know, because both of those are industries that are you know, very dependent on, on the land and how does a French saint get involved and where does King Arthur fit in? <laughs> well, the French saint, he was actually uh... He, he was circa uh, the French Revolution, the, the, the Saint-Just character. Uh, he, he was not really a saint. He was actually, what I remember about him is he borrowed money from his mother because his, his causes, his noble causes were, were making him broke, and he never paid her back. He was one of those, those guys. So I, I think I found this out after I had named Saint-Just my, my character. And Saint Just would always have repaid his mother, you know, whatever it took. He was he was not that guy. Um, but Saint the Cornwall is, oh, I don't know if, if you recognize Ramsey, the the chef. Gordon, what's that? Gordon, yes, Gordon. He's made a big uh, imprint on on Cornwall. Again, bringing in these skills and needs to replace what's been what's been taken away which is you know the mine and and now the uh, the fishing it's incredible but they can't it, it, all these the laws have gotten in their way of, of what they can fish and where um and it's you know politically it's a, it's a real it's a real uh, topic for them uh you know where i Live is a tourist area, but we don't. We only re- rely on on tourists, really. I mean, that's that's kind of what we got. I mean, there are 
I'm surrounded by lawyers and, and people with, with jobs like that in D.C. I live very near Washington, D.C. So there are people with, with, with day jobs, but the people who keep the, this town going and who tend to drive whatever legislation is passed, these are the ones who own shops and restaurants and uh, you know, attractions that bring in the tourist dollar. That's really, really important uh, here. So I feel like I, I can speak to that for, you know, from where I live and also from having visited Cornwall, not, just not nearly enough have I been able to visit Cornwall. You know, we, we've talked some about uh, names and their, their origin, uh, and, and names are, are important, you know, especially in a place where uh, people have, their families have been there for, for generations. And you've got some very colorful names for some of your characters. Uh, was it Titus Bodwally, uh, Sepia Jones, and hold on, is it Medquistal Buglehole? Yeah. <laughs> Close. Those, there is a wonderful website that has, uh, that draws from some database, I don't know, probably census records, and you can and slice it by, I want to see male Cornish names. And that's where I got a lot of, a lot of these names from, from that. You know, you mix and match the first name and the last name to create a new, a new name. And then you can have, you know, female Cornish names. Uh, this thing was wonderfully useful. Sorry, I can't tell you exactly the name of the website, but if you were to Google it, you would find it. And it's, it's the same for, you know, if you're writing about a French character, whatever you're writing about, they, this site has this wonderful database of names. And for a writer, we, you know, we, we absolutely rely on this. It's, it's always dangerous to have a name that someone might decide you're writing about them. I think in the case of Death in Cornwall, you'll agree, nobody's going to think I'm writing about them. The names are too, too odd. On the other hand, they're, they're a bit specific, so it would be one chance in a million if I, if I you know, Morwenna is a pretty standard Cornish name, but some of the last names are, you know, rare. And it would really be something if I happened to land on an actual person. Um, that's always, you know, tricky in writing. You don't want to ever be describing a real person. And if somehow the characters, uh, characteristics of a real person creep in there, then you have to change the hair color and the eye color and so on. You can't, you can't ever be writing about a real person. I have, my training is in journalism, so I know all about these, these pitfalls. And I knew pretty early on not to, not to make that mistake. Uh, but if there is an actual Titus Bodwally or Medquistal Bugle listening, <laughs> get in touch. We'd love yes. to. Yes. <laughs> if there's a Titus Bodwally out there, do not, do not write to me. <laughs> I'm sorry I had to kill off your character, but it's not you. It's really not you. It's nothing personal. Yeah, nothing personal at all. Well, actually, he was uh, Titus. A lot of my characters really are caricatures, I think, of just awful, egotistical people who've, uh, who've, who've made it big. He, he returns to the village basically to lord it up over everybody to let them know, uh, you know how important and rich he is. He, he buys the biggest place. I mean, Shakespeare did kind of the same thing. He, he was finally a success. He could live down, you know, his father apparently was a, a scapegrace in the 
village of uh, Stratford, Stratford-on-Avon. So his son came back, bought the second biggest house. I don't know what the first biggest house was, but I guess it wasn't available. He bought, uh, well, it's the name of the place, you know, very famous uh, tourist attraction now. And, you know, he was, I think Shakespeare was probably not of an obnoxious nature, but he wanted people to know, I have made it here. I made all this money from my writing. And, uh, you know, I want you to know, now I'm a big guy. And aren't, aren't you sorry you treated my father so badly? Yeah. When, when you're creating characters, do you kind of try and, and match them to a name that sort of maybe gives a clue as to their the type of character they are, like you know, Dickens with uh, Uriah Heep, who <laughs> I, I more than once slipped up and called Uriah Creep because he is, but and that name sounds like a creep. And Titus Bodwally sounds like some blowhard stuffed shirt who goes around. Yeah. Blowhard stuffed shirt. That's a very good description. Um, I think a lot of writers really uh, are, are challenged by this. I know that I will maybe start out with a name, call someone. Alexia, and then decide, no, that's not, that's not really fitting this character. I'll do a search and replace, which is so handy. And Alexia becomes Betty or something who, who's closer to what I'm trying to describe. But you might do that three or four times. I know I have. The name is so important to matching uh, the, the personality. It really is. And you include a, a list of names or a cast of characters at the beginning of your book, which is not done as much as it used to be. It used to be fairly common in mysteries. So was that your idea or your publisher's idea to include that in the book? I always did that. I think um, I was influenced by Agatha Christie, who often had a cast of characters. In my case, I, I tend to have a lot of characters and out of kindness to the reader, I thought they might need help with this, you know, uh, remembering who it is I'm talking about now. Uh, that's another, it's not entirely necessary that I'm writing a, a new series, which is contemporary, and I don't use the cast of characters, and I don't plan to, but it does require that every time that character enters the scene, I use their full name, or I describe their hairstyle or do something that makes the readers go, oh, yeah, yeah, her again. Yeah, I, I recognize this. I know where we are. Um, a lot of this really is just don't lose the, the reader on the way. It's something you, you owe to them. They, they paid for this book. Now you'd have to, to, uh, to help them read it. And, and what's, what's next for you? Another St. Just Mystery or your Max Tudor series or something completely different or all of the above? I would go any, any of those directions. Right now I'm writing book one of a new series. This is a contemporary one uh, without a cast of characters that I referred to. Uh, Severn House wanted two books in that series. Uh, I just got editor notes back from the first one. It's, it's a go, and I'm writing the second one a bit simultaneously, which is wonderfully helpful to keep, you know, that, um, to be consistent with the, you know, if things develop in the second story, they're not in the first, and now I'm having to sort of insert them into the first so that it will all make sense. Hopefully people will buy both books and it, they, will, they will get to know this character. Um, 
it's a female, which is new for me. I don't know why I avoided writing, a, you know, as a main character, a female. I just did with Max and with St. Just. Uh, it was time, it was also time to write a book set in the U.S. And I'll tell you what I found out very easily, very quickly, is that there's a lot less research involved because I'm not British. People tend to think I am, which is, which is nice. I kind of fooled them, I guess. But I'm uh, American and I'm, uh, I've, I've avoided setting a book where I live, you know, about people that, that I that I know better than I know the, the British. The British I only know really from reading, you know, P.D. James and, and all those authors um, and knowing a few people when I went to school there. But uh, this has been really freeing in a way and, you know, surprising me. It is surprising me that I found it easier to do, to write a female because I am female and to write about, you know, things that I know because they surround me every day right where I live. So, so it's actually set in your actual city? It is, and yes. And that's, that's where it is going to be. I'll have to be extremely careful. I'm not using street names, except here and there where it doesn't matter. I'm not using actual people. Um, because, yeah, this is right, at, right in, my, <laughs> in my neighborhood. And I, again, I'm not writing about other people, and I don't want them to think I am. It's completely made up. But that's that's the only challenging part of this, really. Other than that, it's been I don't know. It's just been freeing to write. It has. Now, you know, you you made up your village in Death and Cornwall. So how's it different writing about a real place where you you mentioned you have to worry about people not thinking it's them, and you don't want to, you know, put a store that's on seventh accidentally put it on c street or something oh yeah so, how does it feel writing someplace that actually exists versus a place that exists in your mind although once you create it you still didn't have to be consistent it's just that nobody can kind of double check your geography yeah and i am taking liberties with that i have a bookstore in town in the well, i don't want to call it a village it's not a village it's a town um it, but I have relocated it, given it a slightly different name. I simply, I, I don't want to, I don't want to ever be too exact because that will get me in trouble. You know, people think, I mean, that bookstore and I mean that bookstore owner, I've changed everything about that, that I, that I can, especially in the second book that becomes more of a key element. Um, so I do change the street names. The only, I keep the main arteries, like there's a George Washington Parkway, and I I keep that because she, the character uses it to go into Washington, D.C., which is, you know, debatable. Is that a real place? Yeah, it kind of is. And the streets in D.C., the office buildings that she might visit are just based on, they're not, they don't tend to be real places, just based on real places. So people shouldn't try and use this as a tour guide to DC. Oh no, absolutely not. I would not do that. <laughs> I would not advise that. No. No. Anyone who lives here will, especially where I live in Old Town, they will know that I've changed all the streets and and the directions and everything. Yeah, you can't you can't really get there from here. 
Again, can you show the name of, of the book in your new series? Yeah, it's called, it's, um, the first book is called Augusta Hawk, H-A-W-K-E, because that's the main character's name. And I was in an email discussion with my editor the other day. Uh, I told him I really like that name, but I realize it causes a problem because subsequent books will, will not be able to use that name. And you can't call them Augusta Hawk 2 or anything like that. So I'm not even sure that, that that's going to fly with marketing. I just really like the name of this, this woman. It very much uh, suits her personality. She's a bit of an Olive Kitteridge person, a bit, bit of a you know, crank, a bit of an oddball, and the name suits her. So I do want to, if I, if I can, uh, if it will survive the various gauntlets at the publishers, it will be Augusta Hawk is the first one in series. That we'll figure it out as we go along for the second book. All right, maybe title colon and Augusta Hawk mystery. Yeah, after that, it's going to be exactly the uh, colon subtitle Augusta Hawk mystery. Uh, I do have a working title for the second book, but um, I don't know. That's going to be hard. It's really going to be hard. Uh, with Max Tudor, I had four seasons to get through, you know, Wicked Autumn, Pagan Spring, Fatal Winter, and eh, I forget the forget the fourth, but I had four seasons to get through, and I really thought that was going to be the end of the series anyway, so I didn't think beyond that too much. There were three more books to come, and, you know, that worked out. It, Haunted Season, titles like that worked out. Augusta's going to be a bit of more of a challenge, I think. And uh, what is, uh, when will Death in Cornwall be available so people can start reading that while they're, they're waiting for Augusta Hawk to appear on oh, shows? Thank you. You know what? Just yesterday, a box, a very heavy box arrived, and I thought, what is that? I didn't order anything from Amazon. It's my, my book, my copies, my author. Oh, your author copies. Yeah, it's I guess there's 20 books in there and they do weigh a ton. They're hardbacks. Death in Cornwall. I haven't opened it yet. I was sort of thinking, should I video this? Everybody's videoing. They're you know, opening their boxes. I, if I get it together enough, I'll, I'll put something like that on Instagram. But uh, to answer your question, yeah, the books are out there in the United States. Uh, they were, I knew they were out in England, but this I think has been in the UK. I mean, this has been moved up. A bit. I didn't expect to see this box arrive this soon. Uh, the actual uh, ebook is available now. The U.S. version, well, it's in my living room, but I don't know where else it is in the U.S. We'll see. They have a bit of a, a staggered publishing system, which is going to change for Augusta Hawk, and that is a good thing. There will only be one date to keep straight in my head for that book. It will be out, you know, universally on um, July 1st, as it happens. Uh, Death in Cornwall will be available in time for uh, people to give it as Christmas gifts, hint, hint. Uh, yeah, I know, that I'm, I'm counting on that, I really am. Um, it's, the, the story itself is set in August, but the cover looks very Christmassy, so we'll see, we'll see. It, but I do hope it'll be out December, 20th, let's say, in the U.S. so people can buy it. It's already in the U.K., as I said. Yes, so people who uh, 
are, are dreaming of uh, summer during the winter months can unwrap it under the tree and pretend they're in Cornwall in August. That works too. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And where, where can readers connect with you to keep up with your series and, and when uh, new releases are, are coming out? Uh, you have a website or Facebook? You mentioned Instagram. I have a, a website. It's G-M-M-A-L-L-I-E-T dot com. I am on Instagram, Twitter quite a bit. Uh, I, I just find Twitter easy to use. Uh, Pinterest, not not in any organized way. I found your page, by the way, which is very nice. Much oh. more, much better than my page. <laughs> Go see Alexia's page. Um, I'm not on Facebook and that's a long story. It's a long story. I just, uh, I was hacked. I'll try to make this brief. I was hacked and, and Facebook said, okay, change your password. I did, uh, here's the code, insert this code. I, I did that. I said, now send us proof that you are who you are. As it happens, I don't have ID that says GM Malier. And that's all they had to go on. Oh. That, yeah, be, I am a cautionary tale for writers everywhere. If, if you're using your uh, initials as a name, make sure somehow in your, your friends page or whatever that you're using your real name, even if you kind of hide it to go and do your business page because I got in a real snarl with them. And I, again, you, they were in the middle of changing their name to whatever the heck it is now um, and just busy doing other things and fighting off the Russians and whatnot. And I could not get anyone to understand, this is really me. I've been here for 10 years, it's still me. They wouldn't let me back in. So I have sort of a workaround. I piggybacked onto my husband's Facebook page, but I, I hate that. You know, I'm all up in his stuff and I, I just, I want my own page back and Facebook won't, won't unbend. Maybe they'll hear this podcast and understand how, how silly they're being about it. Hear that Zuckerberg? Yeah. Yeah. Mark, take that. But as I said, they're just a little bit busy doing other things. What did they, oh, Meta. That is the new name for Facebook. Meta. This, this kind of make you want to express mail them a copy of your book with the, uh, uh, your, your picture on the, the book jacket. I know, with my shining face on the back. It's, it's a real thing. I, I'm still on uh, Instagram, and if they questioned me, you know, same story. I don't have ID that says GM Malier. So a real test for these, for these guys. But this was something, I, for some reason, someone hacked my Facebook page. Why would they? I'm not a public figure. I'm not that interesting. But for some reason, that's someone actually hacked the thing uh, to, to just to cause trouble. And they sure did. Because some people are rotten. But fortunately, cozy readers said not to be rotten people. They're, they're lovely people. Um, and uh, I'm sure they will uh, only uh, put your name into search engines to find your books uh, to read and, and not to do anything malicious. Well, you would you would certainly think there would be better ways to spend your time. This, this is certainly not going to, you know, enrich anyone or I would think satisfy anyone what happened. It took me about a month of fooling around with it. And I finally said, I, I give up. I don't care. I'm going over to, uh, actually, I went over to Goodreads, which I had neglected for a long time. And I'm really enjoying being on Goodreads, keeping that updated. So, so there, Mark. And, and, 
there, readers, you have it. There are plenty of ways to connect with uh, Jen Malier, Goodread, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, so there, there are still plenty of avenues to, to keep up with what's going on. Oh, yes, yes. Everything but Facebook. That's, that's it. Yeah. Thank you. I probably shouldn't tell that story. It's a pretty lengthy story and just frustrating to relive it. But um, <laughs> we all have. <laughs> well, this is this has really been. Uh, it, it's just so interesting. You don't really get the chance to talk about your work in this industry. You just do your work, and it's always flattering to be asked. I appreciate the questions. Well, I, I appreciate you you being on the show. So thank you very much for joining me in the corner today, Jen. Hey, and my guest today was Jen Malier, author of the St. Just Mysteries, uh, chatting about Death in Cornwall, her latest that should be available in the U.S. in time for Christmas. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. You've been listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.